The following content contains adult subject matter, including descriptions of sexual violence, and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences, therefore discretion is advised. Between 1981 and 1982, a small group of devil worshippers terrorised the streets of Chicago. They drove around the Windy City hunting women to abduct and mutilate for satanic rituals. The group is widely believed to have been led by Robin Gecht, and their crimes have been compared to those of cult leader Charles Manson and the London serial killer Jack the Ripper. It's estimated that Robin and his crew killed at least 17 people, most of whom were women. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sinister Societies, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Sruti Bala. Every week, we're going to cover your favorite cults, faith followers, and secret societies. We'll look at how some of the biggest secretive societies and cults have made their fortunes. And how they've also managed to run in plain sight and permeate into your everyday life. And yes, today, we're getting into Saruti's favorite case of all time, Robin Gecht and the so-called Ripper Crew. They're probably one of the more disturbing groups that we've talked about on this show, so strap in. We'll be talking about how Robin posed as an upstanding, God-worshipping family man, but was actually living a secret life dedicated to satanic literature, rituals, and torture. And we'll get into how he allegedly convinced several young men to help him commit his sadistic crimes. Yes, Hannah has given it away. This is... (laughs) This is a case that we covered many a moon ago on... Our first ever Halloween special. It was our first ever Halloween special. Usually we plug our episodes at the end, but if you haven't listened to Red Handed yet, why the hell not? And if you haven't listened to our Halloween specials, double why the hell not? There we pick the worst cases we can possibly find and tell them to our unwitting audience. And that tells you a lot about this case because it made the cut. It made the cut and it's also been so difficult for us to follow year on year. It's big shoes to fill. Really did uh, spunk my load quite early back in 2017. Well, we didn't know it would be going for five years then. No, So everything was like, bam, bam, bam. Best we can possibly find. Not Um, that it isn't now, just in a different way. It isn't, but this is as bad as it gets. So uh, strap in, everyone. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. All right, so let's get into Robin Gecht's life before the Ripper crew. Robin Gecht was born in November 1953 in Illinois. And Hannah, you love a state motto. Do. Would you like to know the state motto for Illinois? I feel like it's going to be rubbish. It's kind of rubbish. It's no Kentucky. (laughs) It's state sovereignty, national union. Isn't that a bit of an oxymoron? Well, no. State sovereignty, states' rights. Yeah. But we like the whole thing. We like the whole of the United States. 
Unless they fuck with our sovereign rights yes. as a state. It's, unless they fuck with our state rights, then fuck you. Okay. Got all right, it. all right. <laughs> so Robin was a middle child with five siblings. He left home when he was young and moved in with his grandparents. It's thought he left his parents' house because he allegedly molested his sister. During his teenage years, Robin got into Satanism, like any good teenager. I mean, who didn't? Exactly. Really? I mean, if you didn't, you were wasting your time. <laughs> and this era that Robin was a teenager, because obviously he was born in the 50s, in the early 50s. So we're talking 60s, 70s. So obviously this was the same time as the satanic panic era. Mm, bang in the middle, yeah. Absolutely. So again, something that we've talked about many a time over on Red Handed. The satanic panic really, this was the beginning. This was the beginning when it was starting to sort of gain traction in the US. It was after the release of The Exorcist. It was after Charles Manson. It was when people were really starting to think of the devil as being a genuine genuine real life entity that was sort of clip-clopping around the neighborhood waiting to possess people. Yeah, because no one was worried about the Russians anymore. They had to replace it with something. Exactly. McCarthyism becomes satanic panic. Yeah, and if you don't believe us, you can listen to every single episode we've done on the satanic panic over at Red Handed. Exactly. So satanic panic, like I said, it sort of kick-started its way in the 70s, but it really hit its peak, got into its stride in the 80s and 90s. And this is when conspiracy theories about children being abused in satanic rituals were at their prime. And movies like The Exorcist were hugely popular. We bang on about The Exorcist all the time, but it's worth mentioning again. If you don't know how transformative a movie The Exorcist was, well, listen up. because yeah, you're about to know. You're about to know. Because absolutely, The Exorcist came out, I believe, in like 1973, 1974, something like that. And it really did become the turning point for the satanic panic. And it also really pivotally took what used to just be a sort of parlor game that families played, which was like a talking board, quote unquote, into turning the Ouija board into a real life portal for summoning demons. Mm. That was where that shift happened. Before the exorcist came out, people just used to play with the Ouija board like it was a fucking hungry, hungry hippo. <laughs> Yeah, I said it before and I'll say it again. The Exorcist is the most influential film of all time and I will fight anyone on that with my Ouija board. But I have. And my hungry, hungry hippo. Well, I'll be the hungry hippo, <laughs> as usual. And just like hungry, hungry hippos, Robin liked themes of domination and violence. And he also liked to read about the devil's dark powers as well as sacrificial rituals. Nah, who doesn't? I mean, sure. I mean, you know... Come on. <laughs> this is where he should have stopped. But up until now. Well, yeah. I mean, he's probably just reading Crowley. Yeah. Probably didn't really vibe with Anton LaVey. Mm -hmm. Probably. Just a bit of horseplay. He's yeah. definitely more Crowley than LaVey. Oh, for yeah. He also liked to learn about various ways to inflict pain on other people. This is what I'm saying. He should have stopped one sentence before. I mean, I don't know. I like reading about torture. That's true. As do you. That's true. You big hippo. That's crit. true. <laughs> You big, hungry hypocrite. <laughs> I guess what the difference is for me is he liked to learn about various ways to inflict pain on people versus he liked to learn about how pain was inflicted on other people. I don't know. Grasping. Maybe Maybe I'm grasping. <laughs> but then I also know what's about to happen. It's hard not to. I've almost entirely forgotten, so I'm ready for a wild ride. Nothing good. No, in my head... Whenever I think of Halloween Special Part 2, I think of a paperweight made out of a boob. Mm -hmm. Is that what happens? 
Not exactly. Okay, but I'm not. I'm but you're close. Okay, you're okay. in the ballpark, and when that's the ballpark, it's a bad place to be. <laughs> yes, I don't want the tickets. It's the worst. Or the hot dogs, or the fucking giant foam finger. Don't give it to me. Apparently, Robin once told a friend that he was learning about ancient torture methods, and explained how colonizers would cut off the breasts of indigenous women to use as tobacco pouches. Robin dropped out of high school, presumably because they didn't offer trauma A-level. He dropped out when he was about 16 and got to work as an electrical and construction contractor. This bit I remember. Mm -hmm. Because in the 1970s, Robin got a job with a contracting company in Chicago. And it's widely reported that the company was owned by none other than Mr. John Wayne Gacy. As in, yes, the serial killer who dressed up as a clown. Yeah, the one you think it is. Him. Yeah, yeah, it's him. It's not somebody else. Mr. I Had Children in the Walls, Gacy. Yeah. Pogo the Clown. Yeah, I mean, really, when I revealed that to Hannah in our Halloween past special, she did yell at me to fuck off with my entire life. So hopefully, dear listener, you I had did. a similar reaction. Yeah. And we got to bring some horror to your whatever day of the week it is. And just in case you can't remember when Gacy was sort of doing his killing. He was active for quite a long time, but he seems to have kickstarted his killings in the 1970s, specifically 1972. So the theory being that Gecht had a bit of a mentor, a murder mentor, Exactly. You will. Never proven, but it is quite a coincidence. It is quite the coincidence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Chicago Tribune reported that when he was 19... Robin met and married a 16-year-old restaurant worker called Rosemary. In their first few years of marriage, they had three kids. It's 19, she's 16. That's so young. But it's the 70s, I guess. Yeah, and they're in, you know, there's not that much to do. No, there's not. So in the attic of this house that Robin had with Rosemary, he didn't turn it into a nice playroom, maybe, as he could have done for his three kids. No, no, no. He painted red and black crosses on the walls and set up a shrine to Satan. His wife and kids, who were completely unaware of Robin's alleged occult and sadistic interests, were forbidden from entering the attic. Red flag. Yeah, I think if you are married to somebody and they have an entire room, area, shed, bit of the house or garden that you are not allowed to go into, red flag. I would also say it's like a red flag in bold if those rooms are the attic or the basement. Yes, yes. That's way worse. Yes, it is. The I garage, but like... Mm, um, I mean, it's not ideal. No. Garage and shed, it's the next level. While little is known about their personal life, according to reports made by friends, Rosemary had admitted that Robin slashed her breast at least once during sex. If that's true, by the late 70s, Robin's behaviour is believed to have taken an even darker turn. The timing of the supposed shift in his behavior coincided with the arrest of his one-time boss and clown enthusiast, John Wayne Gacy. And if you haven't been to true crime school and you need a reminder, police found the bodies of 26 young men and boys in the crawl space in Gacy's house. I've always thought that crawl space is the best true crime podcast name out there. And somebody took it. I know! <laughs> You're welcome for that free marketing crawl space. A friend quoted Robin as saying, quote, The only mistake Gacy made was burying the bodies under his home. 
The only. The only one. The only mistake. The only one. <laughs> Robin eventually, because he had no boss anymore, started his own business. And according to friends and acquaintances, he began employing impressionable teen boys who came from similar backgrounds as his own. Coming up, we'll get into how Robin Gecht is believed to have recruited several men to join him in his satanic rituals and how that led to the hunting and mutilation of women. Right, let me paint a picture for you, Ian. Yeah, I'm going to set the scene. This is the bit that I like. Right, okay, go for it. It's a beautiful Saturday in early July 2001. Do you remember back about 21 years ago? I remember 2001 fondly. Okay, well, imagine that time, but we're in <laughs> Germany. So, guten Tag. Guten Tag. There's this university in the city of Witten. Yeah. It's high summer. It's really incredibly hot. The students, the locals, they're out. They're enjoying the sun. They're getting their tan on. But behind the door of a small one-bedroom apartment, what? things couldn't be more different. Darkness. Death uh. and destruction lurk inside. And unaware of what they are about to walk into, the local Witten police squad are trying to get in. Bang, bang, bang. Bang, bang, bang. What are you doing? I'm doing like the sound effects. That's the police coming into the... You know, we this is like a big podcast. We can actually like get proper sound effects in. Right, okay. Let's just do that then. There's no answer. <gasps> and as the officers force their way indoors... <laughs> That's not a force sound. That's a squeaky door. That's you taking a shit sound. It sounds like a tricky poo, doesn't it? That's not what I, I don't sound like that when I do a tricky poo, <laughs> to be very clear. So they break down the door. Badoosh! They're greeted with a scene straight out of a gothic horror novel. Here we go. The apartment is almost pitch black. The officers have to squint as they make their way down the corridor, reluctantly groping the walls to keep from tripping over. They inch their way towards a door at the end of the corridor, not knowing what they are about to be greeted with. They creep towards the bedroom. It's as dark as the corridor. An officer pulls back one of the blackout curtains, and the first thing to catch their eye is a full-size coffin laying on the floor. A coffin? Yeah, a coffin. The entire apartment is painted black, and in the living room, cemetery lights illuminate an ultra-fashioned from fake human skulls. So this is the bit when it gets really messed up. In the middle of all of it, there's a body. No way. So the body, the victim, has been stabbed 66 times and a pentagram has been cut into the stomach. There's a message smeared in blood on the window when Satan lives. This is seriously dark stuff. Totally. And it's about to get a whole lot darker. That was the last sound effect. From Spotify, I'm Laura Whitmore. And I'm Ian Sterling. This is Partners in Crime. Every week we rifle through the case files of some of the most infamous, fascinating and bizarre crimes in history. So if, like us, your perfect date night involves turning down the lights real low, cozying up on the sofa and delving into the depraved minds of some seriously messed up criminals, you're very much in the right place. Welcome to episode one, The Vampire Killers.
So let's get into Robin Gecht, his crew, and the women they sexually assaulted and mutilated. In 1980, when Robin was in his late 20s, he met a guy called Eddie Spritzer, who was 19 years old and had a criminal record. Robin helped Ed get construction jobs and even invited him to move in with him and his family. He imagined inviting a random 19-year-old to move in with you, your wife and your three children. I don't like living with anyone. No, no. Get Eddie to take them. And also, 19-year-old boys, specifically as a breed, are disgusting. They truly are. According to Eddie, he came from a dysfunctional family. His mom described him as a shy, withdrawn child who didn't have friends. Robin also took in 17-year-old Andrew Cocolaris, who worked with Robin from 1981 to 1982. Andrew also acted as a sort of live-in babysitter for Robin's children. And not long after Andrew and Robin connected, Andrew introduced his older brother Tommy to Robin. Andrew, Tommy and Eddie all looked up to Robin, and Robin knew it. And he took advantage of it by getting them to do work for low pay. It's possible that when Robin saw how eager they were to please him, he decided to show them what was in his attic. According to a later statement by Thomas Cocolaris, Robin told the guys that he was a Satanist and that if they worked together, they would benefit from the devil's powers. So the boys go in whole hog and they would hold frequent meetings in the Satanic Attic, which Thomas claimed was referred to as the Satanic Chapel. At some point, Robin is believed to have convinced his three followers to help him hunt down women. The group drove around Chicago in a rust-coloured utility van searching for female victims for their satanic rituals. In the van, they built a partition so people couldn't see into the back of it. The group's first victim was Linda Sutton, a 26-year-old mother of two. According to later testimony by Eddie Spritzer and Andrew Cocolaris, on the 23rd of May 1981, she was dragged into the back of Gex's vehicle and handcuffed. During their individual trials, both men claimed that she was then taken to a field behind a local motel where Linda was sexually assaulted and mutilated by Robin Gecht. Her breasts were also sliced off, and after the assault, they drove Linda, who was still alive, to a field where they dumped her body. She eventually died from her wounds. It's thought that the group killed approximately four more women over the next year. Police did find more bodies with lacerations similar to Linda's, but authorities were never able to connect the bodies to the Ripper crew. Two victims who police were able to connect to the Ripper crew were Lorraine Ann Borowski and Shui Mack. Both women went missing in May 1982, and both had been mutilated. Shui's body was found on September the 30th, 1982, and Lorraine's was found on October the 10th, the same year. The similarities between the victims led the police to believe that the murders were connected. On June 13th, 1982, sex worker Angel York was picked up by members of the group. Like the other victims, Angel was also sexually assaulted, but they didn't take her breast. After the attack, they dumped her in an alley. Angel survived, but she couldn't remember much of what happened. The police noted that her wounds were similar to another sex worker who had been found a year earlier. She told the police 
that the attackers had a big red van. In August, another body was found. This one belonged to Sandra Delaware, whose wrists had been tied with a shoelace and her left breast had been removed. A few weeks later in September, another woman's body was found mutilated. While the Ripper crew were on their killing spree, Robin Gecht continued working his construction job and even went to church every Sunday with his wife. He's very much like an accidental murder savant because <laughs> he knows exactly what to do, how to make sure everything looks normal from the outside. Got to keep going to work. Can't fall apart. Can't start to devolve too soon. Got to keep going to church. Got to make sure everybody thinks everything is super normal. And this is where we see the line between somebody who's a serial killer who acts on their own. That's the typical way we sort of envisage these guys as being kind of loners, being sort of outcasts who act completely independently. And there's a reason for that because it's typically true. Usually because a killer's sort of MO, their niche, what gets them off their signature, those things are so unique to one person. It's not typically shared between multiple people because when you bring another person in you're having to then maybe dilute your own fantasies to bring somebody else's in but what does happen when you add multiple people is you have the multiplier effect of things tend to get more and more brutal because more people are participating totally and i think the thing about this particular case which makes it the opposite of anomalous <laughs> standard i suppose in terms of team killers which are rare in and of themselves but there is usually a very clear leader. When you look at something like the toolbox killers, that gets a bit more complicated because you're not really sure who's the leader and who's the follower. But in this case, it's very clear who's in charge. And I think that's a lot of where Get gets his power from, which is why, although it's not very obviously a cult, it is. Mm. And that's why we're obviously talking about it here. Up next, we'll get into how the Ripper crew's sloppiness led the police right to them. So let's get into the Ripper crew's last known killings and how the police finally caught up with them. According to later testimony by Eddie Spritzer, on October the 6th, which happens to be the day I was brought into this world... The Ripper crew were driving around Chicago when Robin pulled out a gun and shot two men who were standing on a street corner. One man died. The other survived. Following the shooting, they picked up a woman called Beverly Washington. They sexually assaulted her and left her for dead. But she somehow survived and was able to describe her attackers to the police. A few weeks later, Eddie Spritzer was pulled over by the police while he was driving around in the crew's utility van. Even though Eddie didn't match the description that Beverly had given the police, the van did. Eddie told them that the van belonged to Robin Gecht. Straight away, no problems. And when authorities caught up with Robin, Beverly picked him out of a lineup. On November the 5th, Robin was arrested. Two days later, Andrew was called in for questioning. Eddie and Andrew confessed to up to 17 murders. Thomas was also arrested and confessed to being present at the murders. But Robin didn't confess. Thomas Cocorales also told authorities that the crew took flesh from their victims 
and ate it as part of a satanic ritual. He went on to say that they would kneel at an altar in Gek's attic, where he would read passages from the Bible. When authorities asked Thomas why he took part in the crimes, he said that Robin had power over him and that he believed Robin had a supernatural connection. Andrew Cockerales was found guilty on two counts of murder and sentenced to death for his role in the killings. He was tried in two separate counties. The first was for the murder of a woman called Rose Beck Davis. At the time of his confession, he said that he and the crew had abducted Rose and beaten her with a hatchet. For this murder, he was sentenced to death. At the other trial, he tried to take back his confession. Despite this, he was found guilty of the murder of Lorraine Borowski and was, again, sentenced to death. Andrew was executed in 1999. In 1984, Thomas Kokoralis said that he was present at some of the attacks, but he denied taking part in the rapes and murders. But in 2019, after spending 35 years inside, he was released from prison. Eddie Spritzer was convicted of the murder and aggravated kidnapping of Linda Sutton. He was sentenced to death, but his sentence was later changed to life without parole. And finally, we come on to Robin Gecht. Robin Gecht attempted to avoid going to trial by claiming insanity, but his attempt failed. He was ultimately sentenced to 120 years for the rape and attempted murder of 18-year-old Beverly Washington. Authorities were never able to pin any of the murders on him because they couldn't find any physical evidence. And he was the only member who did not confess. In fact, he adamantly denied the charges and the other members refused to testify against him. And Robin isn't eligible for parole until 2042 when he'll be close to 90 years old. I hate it when I forget that they're still alive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like one of our first ever tour shows was on Ed Kemper, and I wrote the whole thing convinced that he was dead, <laughs> and then got to the end of the script writing process and realized that he is still alive. And not only is he still alive, he's narrating books for the blind in prison, including Flowers in the Attic, if you yeah. can believe that. So, Why not? Uh, there you are. So yeah, he's still going as Robin. Yeah, and hopefully not narrating books or podcast he's probably doing, doing something. something weird he's probably married was it bundy who did braille i don't know someone did braille i thought it was kemper again but anyway that's that guys that is the nightmarish story yeah sleep of well the ripper crew of chicago try not to think about it too much because it's really bad uh, yeah yeah and uh, we know more than you do and you don't want to know that yeah if you want to know the really, really horrible details, come over and listen to our episode on this over on Red Handed because uh, there's a lot of cheese wire talk over there. Oh my God, I thought you were just going to stop at cheese and then I just went down a hole in my brain that I did not yeah. need to go down. Sorry about that. Thank you ever so much for listening. I hope you made it through and are still here. I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we'll be back next week with another great episode. And we just wanted to mention that for today's episode, we referenced the book Serial Murderers and Their Victims by Eric W. Hickey, as well as reporting from the Chicago Tribune and UPI. 
Remember to follow Sinister Societies on Spotify to get a brand new episode every week. You can listen to this and all other episodes of Sinister Societies for free exclusively on Spotify. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us and you'd like to hear many, many, many more episodes of us talking about the satanic panic and all the horrible shit that went down with it, come listen to us over on Red Handed, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Just a couple of weeks ago, we did a two-parter on the satanic panic, where we talked about the very infamous case of the murder of Betty Ann Sullivan, who was actually murdered by her teenage son. And the details of that case are some of the worst we have ever, ever come across in five years of being true crime podcasters. Then in the second part, we do a big old deep dive into how the satanic panic has never really gone away, but just evolved into something different, like QAnon. So we'll see you there or here or somewhere else or, you know, in your bathroom behind you ah boo (laughs) and all of the above there bye goodbye (laughs) great (laughs) goodbye smashed it (laughs) Sinister Societies is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast it's produced by Kristen Acevedo Gemma Waters and Tracy Levy sound design by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Kevin McAlpine production assistance by Ron Shapiro research by Chelsea Wood and fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez. And we're your hosts, Hannah Maguire and Saruti Bala. <laughs>